Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here just with Richard Lawson, our film critic. Hello. We're doing a little, what they call in the theater, a two-hander. Hey, you know, uh, we'll be joined by Rebecca Keegan later, so, uh, you know, we are nothing without our uh, backup. But yeah, Mike and Joanna are both off in various lands uh, Mm -hmm. as we speak, so we're going to handle things on our own. And we're going to start with news that, as you're hearing this, is a little bit old, but is kind of broken as we were in the recording studio, which is that uh, Jonathan Demi died. Yeah, the great director at 72. Yeah, yeah. It, which is, uh, I mean, I don't really know any details yet, but it, it def- certainly came as a shock to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess when no one is, when someone isn't publicly sick, you don't necessarily know what's uh, what's happening. So yeah, you know, we're just sort of looking at Twitter, which is, I guess, how you find out about these things these yeah. days. Um, and it's interesting to see um, how different, you know, I mean, I follow a lot of film people on Twitter, obviously. Um, you know, some people are remembering him for his really lauded concert films, mm-hmm. or, you know, he's had such an interesting peripatetic career. I mean, obviously, most kind of headlines are going to Silence of the Lambs, or, you know, which is probably his most famous movie. Certainly the one for which he won the Oscar and yeah. uh, which won, yeah. it, it won the... It won the uh, big five. Yeah, the big five. That's what I was trying to think of, the big yeah. five. Yeah. yeah, which is picture, actor, actress, director, screenwriter, right? Screenplay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so I've, and that that's certainly the first of his movies that I saw. And it's one of still one of my all time favorites. I um, mean, it's the like it's, you know, it's a classic for anyone's career, not yeah. just within his. Yeah. But he did a lot of other interesting stuff. I think that his probably most recent, like really lauded uh, project was Rachel Getting Married in 2008. Ugh, which, I love um, that movie. You know, was love a, that movie. A really. Um, and, and, and just looking at I mean, the difference in, in, in style alone. I mean, Rachel Getting Married is this kind of wandering mm-hmm. handheld sort of thing feels sort of improvised whereas um you know silence of the lambs is much more formally structured and so he did a lot he did a lot on television he did his concert films you know it's interesting curtis hansen who died last Mm -hmm. year had a similar sort of erratic but 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 not in a sort of bad way erratic but like a career like they they they, both he and demi um did uh, just were kind of masters of many genres yeah and it was you know he you know recently was directing tv episodes and a lot more of concert films you always had the sense that he might come back with a a feature or uh you know or a concert movie that would just totally surprise you and uh it just felt like there was a lot of work left for him yeah because there was no sort of clear arc to his career he just seemed to sort of do what was interesting to him then um you know he did a couple couple episodes of that show enlightened the the mike white series Mm -hmm. that i that is one of the best things that's been on tv in a long time and you know but then he'll you know do something with neil young or whatever so there was no sense certainly that he was slowing or or was reaching some conclusion and yeah you were a fan of kind of his last narrative feature ricky and the flash it was like he needed some defenders and there you go and that's that's an interesting blend of i mean he'd worked with meryl streep before in the Manchurian Mm -hmm. candidate which i was telling you before we recorded i think that that's a really undersung meryl streep performance you know playing the, the angela lansbury role in that remake as a steely villain so they'd worked together before and they did this movie that kind of blends his concert film techniques into a narrative mm-hmm. story and i that movie came and went and not a lot of people saw it or liked it but i i think it has a great central performance the music is really fun it's a lot of covers of uh you know classic rock songs even she sings springsteen in, in, in the last scene and it's really it's great yeah yeah so worth worth checking out if you if you want to kind of look back at demi's career or look at some of the smaller stuff yeah i remembered recently trying to see if rachel getting married was available on streaming because i just had like an yeah. itch to watch it and it wasn't there but uh yeah. and if any of you if i it just can't be possible but if any of you have not seen Silence of the lambs oh my god go, go 
see it or I mean go find it and watch it at home and and um just be be in awe. It's well you we were both a little too young for it at the time so I assume you came yeah. to it after it was already kind of in the canon. Well, I'll tell you it's um my my mom was always pretty permissive with me and my sister in terms of what we watched. Oh my we, God. we we rent a lot of horror movies and um that was kind of my first genre that got me into movies but like I came home from the video store with my sister with Silence of the Lambs and I was in so that was 19 the movie came out in 91 so this is probably 93 so I was 10. Uh, and, um, we put it on and, and we got about 20 minutes into whenever Catherine Martin's in the, in the hole. Uh-huh. And my mom was like, nope. Yeah. It's one of two times <laughs> in my life that my mom made us stop a movie and take it out. I can't even yeah. imagine what nightmares that would have given. I thought, I think, yeah. I don't think I saw it until college. Like, cause I mean, we have discussed that neither of us is really a horror movie person. No. So like, we not might... anymore. I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think even now, like it's still, you know, anytime I'm like walking by myself in a parking lot and you see a van and it's like, yeah. okay, don't get, don't get shoved into that van. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's completely. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's just so many iconic things in that movie and it's a really good example what demi did and this you know the screenplay helped too but like that novel is not like high art exactly mm-hmm. the thomas harris novel but demi just saw some sort of grim potential and and that movie is always kind of scratching at something deeper and something more and it it doesn't it doesn't flatly state out you know what that is exactly yeah but that movie just has this this weight to it that mm-hmm. um is is really special and that's hard to do with something that's kind of like an airport read you know yeah uh yeah so yeah if somehow you're listening to this in silence of the lambs as a, as a best picture winner you have not caught uh it is a very it's not an easy watch but it's uh not a hard one either it's just really worth it and it's and, essential and, i mean you have yeah to, yeah you gotta see yeah. it so uh yeah jonathan demi we're yeah. uh we're sad to hear that we won't have any more movies from him yeah but at least there's a lot in in, in his career that we can go back and, and appreciate yeah so for the rest of the episode that we had planned out we have, we have uh an interview a very brief interview that you and i did with christian bale and oscar isaac who are the yeah. stars of the promise yeah. uh yeah. which opened in theaters last weekend it's about the Ar- armenian genocide which uh, is not officially called a genocide by the uh government officials of turkey which makes it kind or of, many other including our own yeah, yeah uh yeah it's a it's a weirdly uh it's geopolitically complicated but horrifying uh, bit of history that uh, there's a lot of armenian americans who are kind of very kind of been waiting for a movie like this there's never mm-hmm. really been a movie about the armenian genocide in this way so it's kind of a heavy topic and we went to a hotel suite and talked to them about it and uh luckily they seem to get along pretty well so it was not just a heavy conversation about right. yeah. genocide and some levity yeah, yeah so we'll uh, we'll share that uh, that fairly brief conversation now So we're here today with Christian Bale and Oscar Isaac Hello. talking about their film, The Promise, which is this sweeping romantic war epic. Uh, we were sitting here earlier setting up and you guys seem to have a good rapport. Did, did you know each other before uh, this film? No, no, no. This was all built uh, just on this film uh, alone. It was a, a pretty grueling shoot. Yeah. So it was, uh, uh, it was nice to be able to... Uh, Develop a deep and intimate friendship together. Wouldn't you say? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. There he is again. He's just a joker. Uh, Not really. (laughs) Don't like you much at all. (laughs) There he goes again. (laughs) So at the level you guys are at, it's not like you're going to the same audition rooms and seeing each other across the room and in competition. But I assume you would have been in the same circles or, uh, you know, been up for the same roles at some point. What knowledge did you have of each other before this? Uh, well, I don't think I've, I've never gone up for any of the roles that Christian's gone up for or has been asked to do, but, uh, I've, I've of course been very aware of, of his work for a long time, admired it greatly, and was definitely one of the reasons I wanted to do the film. You were already on board 
I believe when I was approached. Yes. So, uh, so yes, that was, uh, it, uh, definitely was enticing. Well, I was on board, but largely I was saying, well, but depending on who plays, uh, Mikhail. So you weren't just saying like, I'm in, you kind of waited until you saw who your scene partner was going to be. Uh, no. Yeah. As I see it, anyway. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, they cast uh, Oscar. Mm. A great tragedy. Uh, now, how familiar were, were you guys with this particular story? I'm curious, like, um, you know, and the political context around it, because it's set in the early 1900s, but it's still really relevant today. Were, were you aware of, of this history? Relevant to today. Um, I was uh, looking at the news with the Yazidis on the mountaintop uh, tragically being slaughtered by ISIS. At the same time as I was reading uh, the script, which features a scene of the Armenians on uh, Musadag um, uh, under siege and, and being slaughtered, um, ashamed to admit that uh, I knew almost nothing about the Armenian genocide. One and a half million people um, brutally murdered, and yet I'm not alone in not knowing much about this genocide yeah likewise i knew next to nothing about it so i was i was shocked not to not only to find out what had happened but also to realize that so much of the world also has been kept in the dark uh intentionally so about the horrors that occurred uh you know the armenian population decimated by their own government uh in the guise of nationalism uh so so i think that was uh Quite, quite the uh, sudden history lesson to get and to delve into, and particularly to listen to the stories of survivors. So this story is so prevalent for the people in the Armenian diaspora around the world, and there are several actors of Armenian descent in this movie. So did you learn more from your coworkers on this film, or from the consultants who helped you worked on it in the process of making it? Yeah, definitely, consultants, advisors, um, other actors on the film. You cannot help but with uh, certain scenes where. There are there were Armenians on the set whose families were directly involved in the slaughters that we were representing. Very emotional, very unique, very special. Uh, the entire film was set up by Kirk Kakorian, an Armenian. There have been many attempts to make a film about the Armenian genocide on this scale. They've never succeeded, um, usually always, as I've been told, uh, due to um, Turkish uh, interests um, coming in. Um, and, uh, he or was the only fear of disrupting. Yeah. Right. Uh, relationship. Uh, yes. I mean, Tur 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 yeah. absolutely. Turkey has enormous strategic value, which is why probably you've had no U S sitting president ever call it a genocide. Uh, we've had the Pope very recently call it a genocide. We've had presidents out of office calling it a genocide, but nobody in office, uh, saying that. And, um, you know, this was the crumbling of the Ottoman Empire, the birth of Turkey as a nation state. There was a lot of Turkish nationalism. Um, I very much hope that this film can help um, rather than rather than create more hostilities. But, uh, you know, there's there's obviously going to be great birthing pains. And you, 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 you talk with or see in documentaries uh, survivors who witness the brutal slaughter of their families having to talk about people who say that they're lying about that and the pain of having to deal with that, not only the pain of seeing your loved ones killed brutally, 
but also the pain of people not believing you and people denying. And I liken it a little bit like the 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 uh, the argument about climate change here in America. You know, as though there really is an argument. You know, people creating this sense that there is a debate. There's no debate. It's happening. And the same thing with the genocide that people have created this sense um, uh, of uh, a disinformation to make people think that maybe it didn't happen. And that's uh, really a falsehood. Does the charged political aspect of the movie um, and potential pushback from the Turkish government or other governments potentially, does that ever make you trepidatious about taking on a role or that kind of risk? Um, is that something you even think of? Um, well, I think it was important not so much for those reasons, but when looking at this story, uh, to to really talk to Terry and to Christian and to figure out what our approach is and and to really uh, try to um, be judicious with how we do certain scenes, how the story uh, um, develops, uh, because it, there is a responsibility there when you are uh, depicting things, these atrocities that actually occurred uh, that haven't been uh, really uh, shown in, in film not at this level, at least. So, so that's you know, the, the, if if you want to say trepidation, but there's just some carefulness with that. Uh, not so much the po- the charged political aspect of it, because it's really only political for one side, you know, and the other. It's it's truth for the other side. Yeah. Well, my guess is this isn't going to be released in Turkey, and uh, no one's really worried about trying to get it out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, it's not an anti-Turkish film, no, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pro-factual film, it's a pro-healing film, and, and more than that, you know, obviously we hope it helps, but the, the big thing is that we, we've, it's exciting that we can help at, to this level because 100% of the proceeds of the film will be going to humanitarian charities, uh, Amnesty International, um, Human Rights Watch, Human Rights The Watch. Enough Project, yeah. Century. Yeah, it's extra- extraordinary that all of the proceeds of a film of this size uh, will be going to that. So, And so, they're relevant. They're relevant yeah. charities. They're all charities that deal with uh, human rights abuses, that deal with refugee crises, that deal with holding people ac- accountable for uh, genocidal activities. Um, and uh, uh, Terry made a very interesting choice, which I, I did question him on greatly whilst we were making the film, because in doing the research, we learned how barbaric... Uh, 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 the killings were Um, he was very strong minded that he wanted to make this a PG-13 film because he wanted younger people to be able to see it in order for it to be used as an educational resource and there's a big social campaign survival pictures didn't see this just as a film and that's the end of the story they wanted it to be the launch for a social campaign Um, the 100% proceeds as Oscar was talking about going to uh, uh, various um, uh, uh, charities Um, but also they just started up the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA, um, and um, uh, 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 their their real uh, goal with this is to uh, start a serious conversation and to educate people and to um, be a resource for people to come together in collecting data on human rights, um, on genocide, um, and in helping with the huge refugee crisis that we're having. So you guys were saying at the beginning that this was a really grueling shoot, and it's always hard when actors are talking about grueling shoots when you're talking about real life, really difficult things. But, uh, you know, it's hard. So sometimes you hear about a tough shoot and everyone comes away hating each other. And uh, you guys clearly haven't done that. So what makes you go through a long day of shooting in the desert and at the end of the day actually like each other? Well, I've got to say, you know, um, as much of a dick as Oscar is, 
Um, he's an absolute consummate actor, and I think he's one of the finest of our generation. And that's what uh, makes you like him? Look, he didn't say he liked me. Oh, I know that he yeah, purposefully left Very that true. out. Yeah. <laughs> I never said that. Uh, well, thank you guys so much. Uh, congrats on the film. It's a really noble project, so I hope it's able to uh, do some good and highlight uh, uh, something that a lot of people don't know anything about. This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum-sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So it's an interesting time for television. As It's kind of always an interesting time for television. And as, as we'll mm-hmm. talk about later with Rebecca about the WGA strike, uh, TV writers are very busy because there's a lot of uh, good TV. Yeah. And uh, two really interesting examples of it are out this week. We have The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, which uh, debuted, I think, its first three episodes and then will be coming weekly. Right. And then also coming this week is Netflix's Dear White People, which is in the usual Netflix mode. We're all 10. I assume it's 10. It's episodes. 10, yeah. It's always mm-hmm. 10 episodes. Uh, they'll all be dropping at once. So uh, it's not only good television, but it's, it's complicated to figure out how to watch it, which is always my problem. Uh, but let's start with The Handmaid's Tale, which I think has had maybe the splashiest rollout. They had a yeah. big screening at the Tribeca Film Festival, which uh, made some headlines because no one in the cast would call it feminist, which is very interesting. Hmm. Um, and I think yeah. a lot of people are really excited about it. It's this beloved book. It's a, obviously a really timely time for there to be The Handmaid's Tale adaptation. But yeah. I think you had uh, kind of more uh, hesitations about it than a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I was not familiar with the margaret atwood book which i i, I should be i i it's i reread I, it recently yeah. it's very it's very good read. I, I i should have read it by now and, and i and i will do that but yeah i i watched it a while ago they sent they made episodes available to a couple episodes available to me a couple months ago and mm-hmm. you know it's certainly the most i would say the most ambitious show that hulu has done so far uh in terms of its kind of seriousness and its heft um and its scope in a way even though it's about a very sort of interior world I, I I found it a little dull, mm. to be honest. And it wasn't that the themes weren't interesting or the performances. Elizabeth Moth, Moss is the is the lead, and she's great. But uh, something about it felt sort of too insistent on it being prestige television. Mm. You know, it didn't feel kind of alive in a way. That said, I only saw the first two, and it was a while ago, and it's since gotten a bunch of great reviews, and you know obviously thematically about this repressive society what it does to women and their bodies and how how kind of sexual politics are ordered in this dystopian kind of fascist world mm-hmm. uh are really important and really relevant to right now so uh, i think i definitely owe it a second a second 
But that problem you're talking about, I think, comes up in a lot of different shows. The idea of being like, we need to tell you how important and prestigious and expensive this is. And you've watched a lot more, you know, mediocre TV pilots than I have. But I was thinking something like Good Girls Revolt, the Amazon series. It was like set in the 60s and it just like had all the period details, right? But just didn't really have a story to it. Uh, Why does that keep happening? Like, does everyone just want to justify spending so many millions of dollars on television? Yeah. I mean, I think there are other great examples like vinyl, Mm, Uh, you know, a show that one season. One season. Aborted second it season. It got a second season, and then the rumor is that HBO got the budget for Game of Thrones season seven, oh. and we're like, we got to cut something, and yeah. so vinyl was what Well, and everyone kind cut. of wondered why they even gave vinyl a second season. Because no one watched it. Yeah. Uh, you know, friend of the podcast, Griffin Newman, RIP, <laughs> Sorry, your Griffin. role on vinyl. He's doing better <laughs> the now, The chick though. just got a premiere, yeah, a series premiere announced. Got an Amazon show. So, but anyway, yeah, um, I think that, yeah, there's this impulse to, like, if we throw money at the problem, if we hire great set designers and great costume designers, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then we'll we'll, we'll We'll get to something kind of meaningful eventually. Yeah, there is a sort of endemic problem to a lot of prestige television or, or attempts to make it prestige. This, obviously, Handmaid's Tale is a different case because it is based on IP that like is really revered and is important for a lot of people and sort of for discourse about um, feminism and about the potential you know, extremes that some sort of anti-feminist stuff could get to. I mm-hmm. mean, you look, there are shades of men's rights stuff in this you know in this story and 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 the troubling growth of that online although it is you know was written a long time ago and is set in the future it does feel credible in a way so yeah. i think that like this is a different case than like vinyl which was just like big, baby boomer exist? nostalgia that shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have existed yeah. uh pop quiz can you name another original series on hulu I can because there's one I really like called Casual ah, there with you Michaela go. Watkins. That's the only other one I think I really um, hear about. There was the James Franco thing based on Stephen King that didn't go anywhere yep. past that. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. So there was so this Hollywood Reporter piece about this today had this amazing opening line, which was, "Can The Handmaid's Tale do for Hulu what six years and hundreds of millions of dollars has not?" Uh, so the stakes Yeesh. are the stakes are high for uh, Hulu for this because they really oh, want. Like, I mean, that's yeah. part of that like proving how prestige they are thing we're talking about. Is yeah. like they really need to prove themselves as a competitor to, ne- to Netflix and Amazon. Yeah, and I'm sure that they are very happy about all the good reviews that um, Handmaid's Tale has gotten. Yeah. And you know, in a perverse way, the political climate it's the right climate for the show you know and no one wants to benefit from the trump administration well except for trump but um (laughs) but you know it is timely well i'm kind of curious about the other show we want to talk about dear white people because Mm -hmm. that's based on a movie that came out uh yeah it's very timely and it's based on a movie that came out during the obama administration and was about a lot of these ideas of race and identity that i think have only become more prevalent since the movie came out Mm -hmm. uh you know you talk about like black kids on a college campus kind of fighting against like what white people assume about them so i'm curious about how uh the tv version reads in the current context yeah, I, I I recently watched all ten episodes because I was I'm I'm, I'm writing about it, but also because I was engrossed. It's it's mm-hmm. um it's a really interesting show. I think I tweeted something about how it's fascinatingly structured and it it tells a, a one larger story while also telling a lot of shorter kind of stories on the side. So it, formally, it's interesting, but obviously thematically and 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 plot wise it's 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 very much about activism specifically you know black activism and black lives matter you know sort of ideology and it's set on a college campus so we're talking about safe spaces and things like that so it feels very present very of the moment and it does it in a way that is i mean there are moments when it's a little bit kind of i guess a little didactic and sort of just like lecturing but like for the most part, it weaves these themes and these um, political issues, these these thorny political issues, into a really engrossing story where, you know, these are young college kids who are really smart. It's supposed to be an Ivy League school. 
And so they're talking about this stuff and they're they're a lot of the show is about protest and and organizing. What's the show about? Well, so it's about it's about so the kind of inciting incident is there's um this humor magazine uh, that seems to lean kind of libertarian right wing like, you know, like they would they would call people snowflakes, maybe mm-hmm. um, uh, that they have a, a blackface party. Uh, and Which, yeah, I, I scoff, but it happens like it every ha- single yeah. year. Like Cinco de Mayo is coming up. There's going to be something racist oh, on a college campus. God, yes. Like it yeah. always happens. Yeah. And that's the thing is like it might if you were sort of unaware, it might seem absurd. But you no, know, I mean, it's, it totally we, we read something about this at least once a year. So uh, so that happens. And then um, members of a sort of black student union, they storm the party. And then so that kind of kicks off this tension on this very Tony schools mm-hmm. campus. And there's a I, presumably majority white. campus. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there's a historically black um, dorm mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of the action takes place. Um, and so the status of that dorm is kind of comes into question as the, as the season goes on. So, yeah, it's all this political stuff. But, you know, these are also kids. And so there's romance and there's self-discovery. Um, there's a gay character who's figuring some stuff out about himself. And 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 I think that the show really weaves that all together in a very engaging, incredible way. And the actors, who are a lot of kind of um, unknowns relatively, are so good. And it's just a thrill to watch a show that is largely you know, young black people talking sort of about their the way that they socially organize and about, you know, there are conflicting views within the community. It's not a monolithic kind of ideology that we're talking about. So it feels pertinent and well done, which is not always the case. Sometimes things are timely and, and, and politically important, but aren't entertaining or mm-hmm. or artistic and this show is beautifully directed by a host of really cool directors including Barry Jenkins uh, who directs an episode that. yeah so i think it's it's well worth checking out even if it doesn't seem you know well that's not for me or about me that's you know well it's a fascinating route cuz the movie dear white people debuted at sundance 4 years ago something like that and yeah. I, I you know usually you see so a director has a big movie debut at sundance and then they get assigned to direct Jurassic World or something right. um, but to have it adapted as a Netflix series like obviously most movies are not well suited to series but I really like this as the idea for like amplifying a voice at Sundance that you discover that's really exciting yeah that director is Justin Simeon our... former Paramount publicist did oh, you, did you right? ever work with I him when he, yeah well, he used to be a publicist wow, I, good I remember for him. he got me uh, into I think he was at Paramount he got me into a Comic-Con panel once so wow. yeah well he, yeah he's doing he's doing well you know it really does it's a, it is a rare film to TV thing that that works and I think that I was t- I was tweeting about it while watching it with James Pony Wozniak, the critic at New York Times, and I said to him that it's the rare. Sh- you know, people a lot, a lot of times say, "Well, well, it's it's not really a show; it's sort of a televised novel." You know, it's a, we're telling a novelistic story. It's becoming and, such a fascinating cliche. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh, "That's bullshit." This actually does yeah. feel like this kind of really vivid, alive social satire novel that would get like a t- rave you know like mm-hmm. would get rave reviews it's hard to explain if you haven't seen it but like it just it keeps looping back in time and, and shifting perspective and it it does it feels like you're reading something really literary it's really cool yeah no that's really exciting yeah. and like Netflix has you know and in terms of their avatar of peak TV and really expanding what television series are like you know they've had things like Marco Polo which has this very international cast but uh-huh. uh, peak TV like many things it's been very white and having mm-hmm. something that's coming from like a, a different and uh, fascinating perspective it's a welcome yeah. addition and it's genuinely artful and and you know in the same way that insecure on hbo uh is yeah. you know it has the imprimatur of like you know a sort of directorial vision and yeah and, and um, isn't maybe Boslerman making a movie about rap oh dear god or yeah. tv series about rap oh dear god yeah <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so Handmaid's Tale and Your White People, uh, I guess that's a busy weekend's full of uh, viewing. And there's not much out in theaters this weekend, so maybe that's... Uh, Stay home. Yeah. It's April showers. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's, as we record this, it's nasty outside, yeah. so just, just avoid the outdoors entirely. So now we're on the line with Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent, who joins us from time to time to explain what on earth is going on in Los Angeles. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for calling in. Hi, guys. Uh, and there's a lot going on in Los Angeles right now. And I guess in New York, too, the uh, Writers Guild of America has uh, multiple branches. But uh, there's a writer's strike possibly looming. And you are as well versed in this as anyone on Earth. And uh, Richard Knight's kind of wanted you to tell us, like, uh, are, are they going to go on strike? You know, I, I mean, I probably put the chances at about 50-50 right now. It was very significant that about 96% of the Writers Guild members who voted voted to support their negotiators, uh, if they want to strike, that means that the the union has a lot of solidarity. They are really walking into the um, room, negotiating with the studios with a strong sense of being on the same page as a group. Um, but the problem is the union and the producers are really far apart on the issues that they're talking about, the, the health plan, uh, TV writer pay. They're, they have a wide gulf uh to cover by May 1st, which is just next week. Yeah. So the the health plan stuff is obviously important, but for, for our purposes, <laughs> I feel like the writer pay is maybe the, the kind of juicier aspect of it. So can you just kind of uh, explain a little bit about what exactly are, what are the contentious issues um, in terms of salary and whatnot? Yeah, it's easy to get on the in the weeds on this stuff really quickly, as I'm realizing as I go through all these different contract points. But there are a couple of big changes in the TV industry that have affected the way people get paid. And one of them is that we have all of these short series now. Um, and, the, and the limited series, the writers obviously don't get paid as much because they're getting paid per episode. By short um, series, you mean not like short television, but like Westworld, which only runs 10 episodes as opposed to the classic 22 episode season. Exactly. Yeah. So the the problem is sometimes those seasons take as long for the writers to produce. So they're working just as long as they would for a 22 episode season, but they're getting they're not getting paid for it. Um, and it's really a change in the way television is made that the writer's contract hasn't caught up with. So that's a big sort of issue on the table. There's also the way writers are compensated for their work on streaming services like Hulu and Netflix, they get paid much less for those shows than they do for broadcast shows and for cable shows. Way back in 2007, 2008, when the last writer's strike happened, there was a sense that, you know, this whole internet thing might not pan out. Um, and so let's, the studios were able to negotiate that writers would be paid a lot less for those kinds of shows. I think it's clear now in 2017 that they are among the most sort of important, talked about, awarded, buzzy shows there are, and writers want their compensation to reflect that. Especially when you look at some of these shows and like that they're not low budget. You know, yeah, it's not oh, like yeah. they're like making these kind of, you know, with popsicle sticks, like they're really lush productions. And so you would think, you know, I mean, it seems to me that like reasonable that the writers, you know, share in that budget it expenditure. Yeah, you want the writers to get, be as well compensated as the set designer on The Crown. Yeah, exactly. I mean, The, the Crown is a great example because everything, the, the production design, the locations, the costumes, uh, the 
the budgets are enormous on that show, um, but none of it's possible without writers. So, so why should their pay structure be any different? Now, of course, the top tier writers on a show have, um, they're usually extremely well compensated, the showrunners. But a lot of this stems from how the sort of lowest paid folks on the totem pole are, are, are compensated. Those, the minimums is really what the writers are fighting for here. Yeah, I, I think it's always surprising to me to hear that ch- that Netflix and Amazon, these streaming services, are paying the least of anybody else because they are attracting this top flight talent. So is the idea that if you're a writer who's just kind of breaking in or isn't a big name, like you will accept a lower salary to work with Peter Morgan on The Crown as opposed to getting a job in the writer's room on The Big Bang Theory? I mean, first of all, the, these jobs are few and far between. So most sort of newbie writers are excited to get any job. And oftentimes they are starting out on on shows on streaming services. It's not like they're weighing kind of a million offers, typically. Mm-hmm. It's a profession that doesn't really have a middle class, like so many professions in America now. I mean, there are these extremely well compensated showrunners. And then there are oftentimes these other writers who may work and then not work again for three years. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're really well paid for that one season they worked and, and they have to stretch that money over a very long period of time. So, I mean, it, you know, we of course are always talking about the big gun showrunners cause they're so interesting and, and, and they're extremely wealthy, but there's this whole sort of other class of writers who are kind of barely getting by from year to year. So, if there is a strike, Rebecca, what does that look like? I mean, so this affects the 2017 to 2018 television season, right? But so, I mean, I, 10 years ago was a long time, you know, so the last time we had a strike. So so how would this play out in, in, in theory? Well, I mean, it was interesting. I read our colleague Laura Bradley wrote an interesting piece about how the writer's strike uh, played out previous writer strikes played out in the late night TV industry, which is one that first feels the hit because of course those writers are writing off the day's news. They can't stockpile scripts for that. Um, and if you look at the way past writer strikes unfolded, you know, a lot of uh, late night TV went into reruns. And so the crews, the production crews on those shows are out of work immediately. Um, scripted television, there's a little bit of a delay. Uh, you'll see, you know, shows that are supposed to premiere in the fall, which would be being written and produced over the next couple of months, those would be sort of the next to to feel the pain. And then for movies, it's, you know, movies that are on a release calendar for 18 months from now would be the ones where you would see the impact. And I mean, and 10 years ago, I, I mean, I can't unfortunately think of any specific examples, but I know that there were both movies and television shows that were sort of in the hopper, ready to go. Um, that because of the strike just never happened and, and, you know, never will. So like, presumably there is stuff that could just disappear, which is, feels kind of like sad, even though, you know, obviously that the writers have a, a reason to strike. Yeah, no, I'm endlessly fascinated by all of the weird ripple effects of strikes like this when you just yeah. see like, you know, how Lost got screwed because our season was too short and then also a Transformers movie went into production without a script and uh, I mean, it has a really big impact and it seems like everyone in Hollywood understand even if they want to kind of denigrate the writers and make them the lowest men on the totem pole on a set, they, they know that the writers have the power to screw everything up. Well, and it's interesting here too because there are all these weird little ancillary industries that feel the pain. Like the neighborhood that I live in is bordered by three studios, Warner Brothers, Universal, and Disney. And my little local dry cleaner 
gets a ton of business from the studios. So if production stops, this mom and pop business feels it. So for, you know, TV and film consumers, there is that, oh, what's going to happen to my show? And then here in Los Angeles, it's a, a sort of economic uh, it's a terrifying thing economically for a lot of businesses. Yeah, because LA isn't entirely a one industry town, but like that is an industry that looms pretty large in in the sort of economy. So it it is like a, it, it's not just about you know so and so writer from X show you know stopping work. It's it is it has broader impact, obviously. It does. It does, and it's funny, Katie. You brought up that Transformers movie, which is sort of an infamous one. It's hard for me to tell which of those movies had supposedly finished scripts and which didn't. They mm-hmm. all kind of blur together. But yeah, I mean, Michael Bay sort of famously said, oh, this, that movie was terrible because of the writer's strike. Um, and there were other movies like I remember, I think Confessions of a Shopaholic was another one that went into uh, yeah. production mm. before there was a before there was a, a finished script. So you you do. I also I think it's no accident that we're seeing some studios sort of move around releases on their calendar. Both Disney and Fox in the last week m- announced some big release date changes. I suspect that studios are sort of looking at what reasonably is done and what's probably going to need a polish that may or may not happen in May, June, or July if there's a writer strike. So, what is the mood like in town? I mean, uh, you know, uh, it's a it's a pretty liberal town, uh, and you know, I think that a lot of people support unions and support you know the right to strike and stuff like that. But obviously, it has these these kind of effects. Like, are people sort of supportive of the writers, or how how is that how is that feeling? Well, it's interesting. It's not uniform, even among writers. I, for instance, screenwriters that I've talked to are kind of annoyed that TV writers are getting apparently so many of the concessions in the deal making. And then there are a lot of people in town who are uh, production executives. Just last week, Joanna Robinson and I were at at Marvel and I, talking to some executives there. They're sort of just trying to figure out what to do. Everybody is kind of in um, strike contingency planning mode. I don't hear a lot of people complaining about the writers. There's just sort of this sense of uncertainty and how does it affect me? What am I going to do? Uh, isn't there? Isn't it possible that the screen actors are going to be next? Don't don't these kind of come in tandem? These potential strikes. Well, yeah. I mean, the the SAG contract is the next one set to be negotiated it's sort of like a domino effect the director's guild negotiates their contract first then the writers then sag it's interesting too i mean one probably one of the other earliest places if there's a strike that we would see how it's impacting things is at the mtv movie and tv awards this year which are scheduled for may 7th which would be if there is a a walkout among the first live events that we that would have to be produced without writers and not only would writers not be able to work on it, but if you're a SAG member actor and you're nominated, technically you're not supposed to go. Mm. So, so what do you do? How does the, what does the MTV, you know, film and TV awards look like without Emma Watson or, I mean, all of these big stars that supposedly drive their ratings. And none of these big stars want to be the, the, um, the break, the break, yeah, the break the picket line. God, no. And, you know, it's interesting because that particular award show has really tried to kind of reinvent itself this year, mixing TV and film, mixing genders in categories. It's a big year for that for that show. And I they've really sort of 
put a lot into getting people out for it. So that will be interesting to see how everybody handles that. If you were placing a bet, do you think it would happen? Like, would you, how, how would you, how would you, you bet on that? I think, oh gosh, I don't, like I said, I mean, I think it's about, I think it's about 50, 50. There's yeah. an interesting, you know, the fact that the writers are going in there with this huge mandate, 96% of them saying they're willing to strike really tells the, the, the producers, like, let's get serious. I mean, theoretically, they can use this next th- six days to bang through these contract points and get it done. And one other possibility is that they could delay. They could agree right. to push back the contract deadline by a week. If they feel like, hey, we're close, let's keep talking. We just need another you know, two or three days to come to an agreement. That's one thing that they could do. They won't push it back just to rescue the MTV Movie and TV Awards, the most important thing <laughs> on the calendar. Maybe. maybe. Um, well, when, when this a similar vote happened in, in 10 years ago, it was 90% approval. So yeah. this is higher. So who knows? It's higher. And a lot more people turned out. It's interesting because the Guild has tools it didn't last time like they have a podcast now and um uh, many many writers are on social media and sharing their sort of support which has kind of a ripple effect you know last time they had they could communicate with each other via email and phone calls but they have a whole bunch of new ways to sort of get their message out this time yeah i mean twitter barely existed when uh when the last strike yeah. happened i'm just remembering like all the photos of like tina fey on the picket line and 30 rock yeah. and like what on earth a, a tweeted WGA strike would look like this time around? Well, I, I, the, the picket lines were fun last time. I enjoyed going out to them. I remember I went to the one, at, I think it was at Paramount last time, and I was talking to this charming, fascinating man who was just a random writer to me. Um, it ended up being Bob Odenkirk, who <laughs> was not not, that, not as famous at the time and not um, in any way uh, known to me, perhaps you know, reflecting my own ignorance. But I remember thinking like, boy, these writers sure are funny and <laughs> fun to interview and so smart. And then I go back and I Google this Odenkirk character. I was like, oh. Yeah, and then now he's an Emmy nominee. <laughs> and that. now he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Rebecca, if there is a strike, we will certainly have you uh, back on to help us explain what in the world is going to happen. And we're going to have a lot of very surreal late night shows to watch at least. <laughs> this is true. And this I, is true. I would ask that we all pray for the MTV movie and TV awards. <laughs> I know. Let us now have I mean, a moment. What will silence. happen to our culture if it's if that show suffers? Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca, as always. Thanks, guys. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep rating and reviewing us on iTunes and talking to us on Twitter and, and otherwise letting us know that you're listening. We love hearing from you. We're all at VanityFair.com, including Mike and Joanna, who have not gone far. And on Twitter, I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylaws. And we're all at Little Gold Men. This episode was produced by Jordan Bell and Alana Milner and edited by Jordan Bell. And this week's award goes out to a very special producer who is leaving us after this episode. Alana Milner has been with us for almost a year, has been delightful. So this week's award for what you would say for any podcast episode produced by Alana Milner goes to me. I mean, it's the like, it's, you know, it's a classic for anyone's career. (laughs) 